yes, I'm on the tail end of a cold here. So um, I'm surprised you operated with this so low. There we go. You're as tall as me, man. All right. Well, good morning. <clears throat> the other benefit to the uh, following along with the online sermon notes that we made available to you is you'll know when I'm close to being done. So that gives you a benefit as well because they follow in a sequential order. So if you're curious, when's this guy going to be done? Get on the notes and you'll find out uh, how close we are to being finished. So, well, as we enter into uh, this fall season, tomorrow, start of fall, we uh, are also beginning a new sermon series. And the sermon series that we're focusing upon uh, right now for the next few weeks is based upon a vision statement that we as a church uh, developed and adopted a number of months ago earlier this year. And, and it's in, the series is intended to help you catch that vision. So, as we consider that, I want to ask you to begin with me by imagining for a second that you are on the deck of a ship. You can choose what kind of ship it is, but, but maybe you'll choose a cruise ship because those are a lot of fun. You're on the deck of a ship. And as you look out, you can see the captain. You can see the crew are all working hard. They, they seem to know what they're doing, and they, they seem to have an idea of where they're going. But when you look over the railing of that ship, all you can see is sky and water for miles. And there's nothing else that you can see. And so you ask the captain, where are we going? Where, where are we headed? And in response, he pulls out a compass, and he, he shows you the compass, and he says, south. We're, we're heading south. Now, as you look at the compass, you can look at the reading, you know that that's true. We're going south, but, but south isn't really that exciting, because south could mean Calgary, and that's not really that exciting. Now, he notices your lack of enthusiasm, and so he pulls out a full-color brochure, and he hands that to you. And as you look at the cover of the brochure, you can see white sand beaches, palm trees, crystal clear water. As, as you open the cover on, on the first page, there's a section about food, about the buffets and the fine dining that, that exists at this place you're traveling towards. And you turn another page, it talks about the spa. You, you can get a massage on the beach. Like, like that sounds awesome. There, there's a section on excursions where you can go snorkeling and sightseeing and you can do lots of shopping. And, and as you flip through the pages, there's, there's picture after picture of people smiling and laughing and playing and resting in the fun in the sun. And now... Now that you've seen that brochure, now you're starting to get excited about South. Because you can see it. You can imagine what it's going to be like. You can anticipate what that will be like when it becomes a reality for you. Well, we here at West Meadows have been on a journey. We're not heading to any Caribbean resorts, unfortunately, as we enter into the colder season. But we do believe that God has, has directed our compass towards the people, the homes, and the community of Lewis Farms. And we've talked about this in the past, how, how 25 years ago, through, through the prayerful discernment of wise people of this church, some of who are still sitting in the pews here, God directed them to build in this place, upon this land, that he has called us and prepared us to be in this place for, I believe, such a time as this, and that he has preserved this mission field for us. And this brochure, or, or this vision statement, if you will, is, is a picture of a preferred future, of what it would look like if we were successful in our mission. And what is that vision? Our vision is to be the heart of new life in Lewis Farms and beyond. Now, that might be hard for you to get your head around. 
It might be hard for you to, to visualize in your mind. It, it may not even rouse up any sort of excitement within you at this point. But that's what this series is about. It's to help you to experience new life personally. It's to help you understand what would it look like to be an agent of new life in the world around you, in the community around you. It's to help you understand what does it mean to have eyes to see new life when we encounter it. And our model for this series, the pattern we're going to be following, are the relationships that Jesus had. The relationships that he cultivated with the different groups of people that existed in his world. And as we're going to discover, in each different type of relationship that he had, there was an opportunity an opportunity for him to be at the heart, for him to be the, the catalyst of new life to erupt within that person or within that group of people. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I come that you may have life and have it to the full. And then his final words to his followers, which includes us today, is go, proclaim, teach, invite people to find life in me. What will new life look like? What will new life feel like if we're successful? Well, I hope this series will help us to answer some of those questions. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you bring us together as your church. And that as your church, you have placed us on mission to invite others to come to know you. God, I pray today as we speak, you'll, you'll help me to convey with excitement the vision that you have prepared and called us as West Meadows to. And that you help us to understand, to, be, to experience, and to be examples of new life. That you may be seen in us and through us in these days ahead. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we begin today with Jesus' most foundational, with Jesus' most enduring relationship. And that being the relationship that he had with his heavenly father. Now, likewise, in our lives, if we are going to experience and understand new life, it begins with us having a personal relationship with our Heavenly Father as well. Now, before we consider what that looks like in our lives, let's unpack how that developed within Jesus' life. Now, first of all, the idea of Jesus having to cultivate this relationship with the Father it may seem odd to some people. After all, the Bible teaches us that Jesus was born of God and of woman. He, he was the son of God. And as our statement of faith as a church declares, Jesus was fully God and fully man. And we read about this, in, for example, in John 1.14, where it says, The word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the Father, full of truth and grace. Therefore, if there's a close relationship between the father and son, that probably doesn't seem that surprising. It seems almost automatic, this relationship between the father and the son. But throughout, throughout Christian history, there's been a bit of a, a question. It, it's this dual nature has tended to raise some questions, such as, was, was Jesus born with all awareness and with all wisdom? Or, or was that something that developed over a period of time? You see, Jesus has always been God, but he has not always been man. That's a miracle that happened 2,000 years ago that we celebrate at Christmas. That's what we refer to when we use the word incarnation, that God became man. Now, when that happened, 
He did not give up any divine attributes, uh, things like, like knowledge and power and, and being eternal and, and self-sufficiency. He did not give up any of those divine attributes in the incarnation. But you see, instead he took on or added to himself all human attributes of, of having a, a human body, mind, and soul, be, being fully human, all those things that we would attribute to being fully man. That's why we can read in the scriptures that, that God and Jesus, that, that, that Jesus tired, he thirsted, he got hungry, he, he got weak. There were moments he had to sleep. He, he marveled at things. And ultimately he suffered and he died. These aspects we would attribute with a human life, not necessarily with the life of a deity. You, you see, in Jesus, he became subject to the conditions and the limitations of his humanity. And this extended to his relationship with his father. You see what I mean here? If we look at a, at a, a simple story, an interplay between these two natures. In a story that might be familiar to many of us found in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. A story that takes place when Jesus was 12 years old and, and his family travels to Jerusalem for the Passover. And we read in this, this account that Mary and Joseph every year would travel to Jerusalem for this feast of Passover. And, and when people would travel long distances in that time, they would tend to do it in family groups. And, and close friends would travel together for, for company, for support, but also for a sense of safety. And when they arrive in Jerusalem, there's like this week-long celebration they're a part of. And, and it comes time to leave. And as they're traveling back home again, as you can imagine, if you're traveling in a large family group, it, it's sort of a shared responsibility between family to family of who's looking after the kids and looking after different parts of the travel. And, and so the kids are kind of moving from family to family group as they travel along the way. And you may not see your children for a while. Well, it reaches a point where a full day passes, and, and Mary probably looked at Joseph at some point and says, Joseph, you've seen Jesus. Like, I've seen James, I've seen the other kids, but I haven't seen Jesus for a while. Well, check with the kids. Have the other kids seen him? Check with the aunts. Check with the uncles. Check with the cousins. Nobody has seen Jesus. He's missing. Now, as a parent, have you ever left a kid behind? It's, they're in Sunday school. They're not here. It's okay. We can admit it. You know, I don't mean have you ever wanted to leave a kid behind. Come back for you when you're 18. I mean, like, you actually, you forgot them at soccer practice. You, you, you left them at church. They were having so much fun. So you just left them behind. Now, I, there was this one wedding I officiated where we had gone through the rehearsal, and the Saturday arrives, and we're waiting for the ceremony to start, and the wedding parties typically are late. And so as the limos start to arrive and the wedding parties start to unload, the men came in one, the women came in a different one, and it's time to get going. So I'm like, okay, folks, into our places. And we start lining up, getting organized, and I asked the guys, I said, where's the ring bearer? And this cute little five-year-old boy who was at the rehearsal wasn't there on Saturday. And there's this sudden look of panic upon the groomsmen's faces because they realize we left him at home playing video games. <laughs> and so the groomsmen jump in a car and run back to the house to get him while the groom is saying, don't tell my wife I ditched her nephew, <laughs> which is not a great way to start your marriage. So, so these things happen. That little guy was only alone for a couple, about maybe an hour or so. But Jesus had been left alone for three days. A day of traveling away, a day of traveling back, and a day of searching for him. They find him in the temple. He's in the temple talking and, and asking questions and answering questions and discussing the things of God with the religious leaders in the temple. 
And as you can imagine, when his parents arrive at the temple, they find him at the temple. They, they, they grab him, they give him this huge hug, and, they, and then they, and then they kind of snap back a little bit and go, how could you do this to us? We've been worried sick about you. But then listen to his reply. He says in verse 49, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be about in my father's house? You see, in this statement, there's this clear awareness, even at the age of 12, that he has a divine nature, that he has a relationship with his heavenly father. But as we keep reading, the story finishes where it says that Mary and Joseph and Jesus then go home, and, and, and Jesus was an obedient boy to his parents from that point forward. And we find this final verse in verse 52, where it says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. You see, in this statement, we see this aspect of his human nature, that he had to develop, he had to mature, just like any other boy or girl, moving from adolescence to adulthood. That while he was fully God and fully human, there's no indication that he was born with all wisdom and with all knowledge from birth. There's this dual nature taking place here. And this is helpful for us. Because if we're going to grow in our relationship with our Heavenly Father and the world around us, we can now consider the model of Jesus who had to cultivate his relationships with man and with God. Now, now, what does that mean to cultivate a relationship? And let's talk about that for a second. What does it mean to cultivate a relationship? And, and in particular, what does that look like in the life of Jesus? Well, the word cultivate is an agricultural term. It, it begins with this process of, of kind of like breaking up the soil and preparing it for, for plowing it and for planting. But then the word cultivate doesn't stop there. It actually continues to the sense of caring for, intending for, investing in, and maintaining what you have planted. There's a related usage that we have in, in common language where it refers to the, the acquisition, trying to acquire something like an ability or a skill in our lives. For example, if you're a student, you may cultivate good study habits to help you earn good grades. Uh, in your homes, you may cultivate a, a happy, healthy home for your kids or for your grandkids. Professionally, you might put a lot of effort into cultivating a reputation of honesty and integrity in the workplace. And even in your relationship with God. You can cultivate a deep spiritual well from which you can drink from, where, where your life is, is characterized by, by faithfulness and grace and truth and love for others. But these things don't just happen. Along with this word, the meaning of the word cultivate is the sense that it doesn't just happen by accident. That if you're going to be able to cultivate good relationships, they don't just naturally spring up on their own without a sense of choice and effort being made. Like a farmer who wants to cultivate high-producing fields doesn't just leave it to random chance. He doesn't just go, well, hey, let's let nature do its thing, see what pops up. You won't be a farmer very long because you get a combination of the good and the bad popping up together, and quite often the bad wrecks the good. See, in verse 52, where it says Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in the favor with God and man, there's these steps that took place in that process. Now, what do those words mean? First of all, the word stature here really is referring to uh, maturity. Referring to maturity, but not, not just physical maturing, but, but also emotionally and relationally, uh, just like you and I have to go through in, in our lives. The difference here 
is that at each stage, Jesus attained perfection morally and spiritually within his life at each stage of maturity. He developed wisdom. He grew in wisdom. What is that? Wisdom is applied knowledge. See, there's a lot of smart people who are not wise. There's a lot of smart people who do dumb things. Jesus wasn't one of them. He would have attended school. He would have gone to synagogue. He he would have been learning these things, educated in the ways of the world and of God. He had this ability to learn and to gain knowledge, but then also to put that into use as he interacted with the world and the people in his world. And that enabled him to grow in favor with man. Now we know from reading the scriptures, from from reading the gospels, that that people loved Jesus. That we read about his ministry, they, they, they would flock to him. Crowds from miles around would come to hear him teach and to heal and to be around him and to try to reach out and touch him. People loved him. But that started when he was 30 years old. I think even before that, we know that he was a carpenter. That means he had a business. It means he had business dealings. And and even though it's not in Scripture, I think it's safe to assume that the Son of God had a good relationship in his business dealings with people. I think it's a pretty safe assumption that we can make. You can trust Jesus. You can can take him at his word. He says that table's ready Tuesday. That table's ready Tuesday. He had a good reputation with people. And he grew in favor with God as well. This would be similar to what we talk about as spiritual formation within ourselves where he knew the Father. He didn't just know things about the Father. He knew the Father, and the Father knew him because they were in relationship with each other. We see this clearly in the Gospels. For example, if you were to sit and read the Gospel of Luke in one sitting, this would come off the page for you. As you would see Jesus regularly in this pattern of prayer, where he's regularly talking to his Father, inviting him into all sorts of situations in his life and situations that he needs to seek his will. And then he's obedient to the Father's will. We see that Jesus knew the scriptures and quoted and abided by the scriptures, that he served and loved other people, that he grew in favor with God. See, in Jesus' life, there was never a step. There was never an action There is never a word that did not come from his divine origin. Speaking of his heavenly father, he says in John 8, 29, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. For I always do what pleases him. Jesus lived and ministered out of this deep awareness and dependence upon the heavenly father. That was the source from which all of his ability, his perseverance, his hope, his confidence, his strength flowed from, from this relationship. It's why when we see Jesus at his baptism, he's able to celebrate with the Father. And as Jesus comes up out of the water, it says in Luke that Jesus was praying as he was being baptized and and a dove descended like the Holy Spirit and the voice of his Father said, you are my son whom I love. You are my son whom I am well pleased relationship. When Jesus had tough decisions to make, such as selecting which 12 people of all of his followers were going to be his his close group of disciples, before he made that decision, he knew he needed to talk to the Father. And so we're told that, and again in the Gospel of Luke, that he spent all night in prayer talking to the Father about it. And in the morning was able to make his decision. 
We're told that these moments of deep struggle and anguish in his life, such as the Garden of Gethsemane, when, when Jesus was nearing the end of his life and the pressure and the weight of the world was literally upon his shoulders, that he could cry out to the Father and he could say, Lord, take this cup, I'm struggling. And yet, even in those words, he was saying, I will always do what pleases the Father, because he followed up by saying, yet not my will, but yours be done. And it's why at the end, as he hung upon the cross, his mind was still upon the Father. As he hung upon that cross to pay the price for our sins, his final words were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last. From birth to death, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and reputation with man, and the presence of his heavenly Father was never devoid of a moment of any of it. For us, whether we are at school, if we're at work, if, if we're at home, if we're sitting on a bus, if we're watching a game at Roger's Place, if we're sitting here in this church, if you are in relationship with your heavenly Father, every single action, every single interaction with another person will be a reflection of what type of relationship you are cultivating with your heavenly Father. All of your actions, your reflections will be a reflection of your relationship that you are or are not cultivating with your heavenly father. Some people try and live these dual lives where they have these two worlds they live in. It's referred to sometimes as, as the sacred and the secular world. I have my sacred life where, where when I'm, I'm praying, where I'm, I'm reading my Bible, I, I attend church when, when I write my check or tithe online, when I volunteer, that, that's my sacred time. But then... There's Monday to Saturday, which is my secular time. The way I work, the way I relax, the, the way I talk to people, the way I treat others. It's different. That, that's the stuff that I do in the world. That's different. There's two worlds of sacred and secular. But the well-respected and known pastor and theologian A.W. Tozer said this. He said, it is not what a man does that determines whether his work is sacred or secular. It is why he does it. Let a man sanctify the Lord God in his heart, and he can thereafter do no common act. Let him sanctify the Lord God in his heart. Let him cultivate a relationship with the Heavenly Father. And from that point forward, he can therefore do no common act. If you are living in a world with this divide, I have good news for you. You are primed to see new life. You are primed to see it happen in your world because whatever area of your life that you are withholding God's presence from represents an area where you've not yet allowed him to work and for his power to be revealed. Whether that be in your workplace. Well, no, I, I got to work the way I work. That's, that's the way it happens. I just, we just don't talk about what I have to do to, to make the commissions. We talk about our friendships. Well, how much do your friends know about you, about your, your journey, about your faith? Do we, do we hide that part from them? Sacred versus secular. Our recreation. Well, yeah, I, I do my Bible study, but then what I do on my weekends is what I do on my weekends. There's things in people's lives that would fall into the categories of addictions and vices that have not yet found freedom from. What about having God in our homes? Do we, do we pray as a family? Do we read scripture as a family? Do, do we talk about the things of God? Do we invite them into the situations our, our kids, our youth, our grandchildren are encountering? Even in our church. Well, I, mean, I, just, I just come and take it all in. But, but are, we, are we contributing? Are, 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 are we volunteering? 
Are we tithing? Are we supporting the ministry of the church? We invited God into those things. Uh, maybe a past wound that has never healed because instead of inviting God in and seeing his power exercised in that moment, instead we have had anger towards God for allowing it to happen in the first place. And so we hang on to that. Or we have plans for our future and I'm going to forge my path. And I know it's not to say what God may want, but it's the path that I'm walking. These are all areas in which we have opportunity to invite God in. If you will allow him, if you invite him to come in, opportunity for a new perspective, for a new fruitfulness, for a new sense of peace and joy can erupt in your life. You can experience new life in all those areas when you invite the Heavenly Father in. When you are cultivating a relationship with our Heavenly Father, when you're seeking to follow, to obey, to draw others to do the same in their lives, everything you say, Everything you do, everywhere you go can be a sacred moment if it is done in honor of him. Now, built upon our history, built upon the past and looking towards the future, I I sincerely pray that West Meadows would be a place where everyone cultivates deep roots in our relationship with the Heavenly Father. This is part of our vision of new life is that everyone would find this to be a place where they can cultivate deep roots with their Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ. That means that when people come to this place with big questions of life, whether it be questions about faith or about God, that they are welcomed. It doesn't matter of their background. It doesn't matter what clothes they're wearing. It doesn't matter what question it is, that they are welcomed into this place so they can find answers to those questions. They can be welcomed and they can find spiritual new life to erupt within them from this place. That when people are going through times of struggles, that their relationship with God would be their source of mercy and strength within them. And that we as the people would be vessels of that strength and support for them. That the word of God would be taught to all generations through this place. And I don't just mean from the pulpit on Sunday morning, but I mean in your living rooms, in your kitchens, in the workplaces, in the schools of this community. That those who are down and discouraged would be lifted up and encouraged because of their connection with their Heavenly Father. And that the community around us would see God and see us as the people of God in a positive light because we have lived out the grace, truth, and love of Jesus Christ in their midst. If we're going to personally experience new life of this fashion, if we're going to be at the heart of new life, in people's lives and in their homes and in our community, it begins with all of us cultivating an ever-deepening relationship with the Heavenly Father. Because that was Jesus' foundational relationship, and it needs to be our foundational and most enduring relationship as well. Because that is a source from which all new life springs. That's where it comes from. So how do we do that? How do we grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man? Well, Paul explained it to his church this way. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, he said, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in your faith as you were taught. See, Paul first speaks here of having received Christ Jesus. That's where it all begins entering into a relationship with Jesus. To receive Jesus means that we accept the reality, the reality for all of us, that his sacrifice upon the cross was sufficient to pay the price for our sins. 
You see, all people from the very beginning of time, right up to this day and, and into tomorrow, all people have sinned. All of us have violated God's laws. We, we've wronged each other. We've, we've gone against God's will. We, we've chosen our own way and our own decisions. And that's led to a separation between us and God. And God being perfect in holiness and purity can't associate with us because of our sin. And that is a problem that is beyond our ability to overcome. But like any good, caring, loving father, he stepped in. He stepped in to solve the problem. He sent his son Jesus. As we read earlier in John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus taught us how to live. He taught us how to love. And at the end, he paid the price upon the cross for our sins. <clears throat> That's what John 3.16 is all about. For God so loved the world, those who are a part of his family, those who still belonged to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. You can receive Jesus through a simple heartfelt prayer. That you just simply say in your heart, even where you're sitting right now, you can simply say, Lord, I need you. I acknowledge that this, I have sin in my life. There are things that I can't solve on my own in my life. I need you. Thank you for dying for me to pay the price. Thank you for coming into my life to walk through these challenges with me. You gave your life for me. Now I give you mine. And through a simple prayer such as that, through a heartfelt prayer such as that, we're told in, in 2 Corinthians that if anyone is in Christ, we become in Christ in that moment. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come because the old has passed away and the new life is here. And at that moment, a person has a new identity, a new destiny, a new family, a new hope, and a new freedom. That person has new life. But then we continue in that. It's, it's not sort of a one-time profession and it's done. Then we begin cultivating that relationship. And that's what Paul talks about. He continues in this passage about being rooted and built up in Christ then, once we are in Christ. What, what does it mean to be rooted? Well, what role does roots, do roots play in a plant? We know those answers from, from science class in school, that, that the roots provide a grounding that roots attach the plant to the foundation. So we're in Christ. It keeps us planted in Christ. We know that roots deliver nutrients to the plant to make it healthy, to make it vibrant. We know that the roots allow it to grow strong so that it can endure the winds, so that it can endure the stresses that the world places upon it. We know that the roots are the very source of life to that plant. You see, rooted in Jesus Christ is where life is found. If a farmer's going to tend his crop, if it's going to grow and be fruitful, he knows he needs to do things to it so that it will grow deep roots. So how do we grow deep roots? How do we cultivate deep rootedness in our relationship with our Heavenly Father? I'm going to give you four examples of how we can do that quickly, and not a single one of these is going to be a surprise to you. But the reality is, is that they need to be put into practice, and they are practically effective. The first one is that we need to be praying. We need to be in communication with our Heavenly Father. Praying is a matter of sharing our lives with Him, of, of inviting Him into situations in our lives. 
where we have different events, fears, celebrations. We share that with him, but then also take time to listen to him as well. See, the goal in prayer is this, is to make prayer a regular part of your life. And this isn't a foreign concept to us. So many of us, if, if we have a thought, if we get an idea, if we have a situation, an encounter, what's the first thing we do? We pull out our phones and we text a friend. We say, hey, I was just thinking, random thought. Or if a situation happens, you share that with a friend. We're so prone to do it through our text messages and through phone calls and emails to our friends. Prayer is is the same thing, but instead of reaching out to a friend, we reach out to God and we share those moments, those thoughts, those ideas, those fears, those challenges, those celebrations with him. It turns us into a regular conversation, a life of prayer. The second thing is reading our Bibles. That's where we get to know him, who he is what he's done, what he wills to do, what he, uh, what he loves, his love for you and his future hope for you. We talk often about needing to have a, a space and a place. That means finding space in your calendar where you have a regular time of reading the word of God. Finding a space, maybe even in your, in your house where there's that specific chair you sit in to read the scriptures. Or if it's on your way to work as you're driving, this is my commute when I listen to the Bible on the radio. Whatever it may be, finding that space in our calendars and our lives to carve out time for that. But then also finding our place in God's story. The Bible is the story of God and, and there's a place in it for us to enter into that with him. I want to help you with that. If you've struggled with finding a regular Bible reading plan, let me give you a hand. If you happen to follow Zach's instructions on those Bible notes, every single week I post a Bible reading plan as part of those notes. You just simply click on the link and it signs you up for it. It'll send you reminders and everything. And there's two plans you can do. I just want to recommend to you right now. One, if you're in there, there's one called God's Story. If you've never read the whole Bible... And or sometimes people want to read the whole Bible in a year. Uh, it's too late for that. It's almost October. But, <laughs> but here's what I found. I found a, a God story reading plan that takes pieces of the story from Genesis through Revelation. And you can get, through snippets, you can get a picture of the whole story of the Bible in 80 days, which is a little more than we have from today till the end of the year. If you were to start that in the next couple of days, you could read through that Bible plan and not read the whole Bible, but read the whole story of the Bible in the next couple of months. And here's another beautiful thing about that plan. As I went through it, they've built in tons of days for catch-up. So, so if you tend to get off track for a day or two, and that's why you've had a lack of success in reading this, they've built that in for you because they know that that's human nature. That's part of the Bible app called God's Story. Another option is if you were to take your Bible and simply open up to the book of Matthew, and start reading from there for 15 minutes a day. If you start doing that today, you would be able to get through the entire New Testament between now and Christmas. This is exactly the window of time that it takes to do that. So those are two simple ways you can very easily start getting into a Bible reading plan even today. Third thing, prayer, scripture reading. Third thing, serving and giving. When we give of our three T's, time, talents, and things, When we give of those things, we're giving them for God's purposes. When you volunteer, when you tithe, you are releasing control of those things for your own will. You are opening up your hands and saying, God, these are given by you and I give them back for you. And you release them to God's will. You know the most beautiful thing of giving and serving is? 
is it's taking our relationship with the Heavenly Father and putting it into action in the world around us. It puts our relationship into action. And then the fourth thing is fellowship. The Christian life was never meant to be done alone. It was meant to be done in communion with other people. And we're going to talk more about that next week because that's the group of people we're going to talk about, the relationship we're going to talk about next week. See, the point we boil down to is this. Jesus is the source, and he is the foundation of new life in us and through us. He is the heart of new life in a person. But he has sent us, his church, to go and be the heart of new life in the world as we draw people into him. Have you experienced new life in Jesus Christ? If you have never accepted him, if you have never prayed that prayer of confession and of thanking him for dying for your sins, do it today. Start living in freedom with him today. You can pray that simple prayer I mentioned a moment ago right where you sit. You can come forward at the end of the service. There'll be people here who will be glad to pray with you. Or if you still want to know more, if you want to talk more about this, then come see me after the service or better yet, attend Alpha. Alpha is Monday at 7 p.m. And these are the things that we talk about at Alpha. We go through the basic tenets of the Christian faith and we have a time for discussion. And you're welcome to join us Monday at 7 o'clock. If you are in Christ, how's the cultivating going? Are you cultivating? Are, Are you seeing new life in Jesus Christ? Or if you're honest with yourself, are there some areas that you're holding back that you have not allowed his presence, his power to be revealed in? If that's the case, I want to challenge you to name just one. Don't name five of them. Just name one. Name one area where you know you have not allowed the presence and the power of God to have his way. And start cultivating him into that one area of your life. That one area that's a little more sacred, secular than sacred. Invite Jesus into that. And allow his presence, allow his will to guide you. Because God is working And God is moving. And through him, we can be at the heart of new life in Lewis Farms and beyond. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, for those who are gathered here today, I ask, Lord, that we would would be a community that can come around one another to to meet the needs that exist. Those be spiritual needs, material needs, relational needs, emotional needs that exist, that, that we would be your instruments of new life in each other because of your presence in us. God, for those who may be here and have not made that initial profession of faith, God, I pray for those people right now that right where they sit, that the conviction within their heart, that voice within them that says, yes, this is a step that is missing. This is the first step you need to take, that they would not push that away. But Lord, that they would be responsive to that conviction and take that step of thanking you for dying for their sins. Lord, for those of us here who, who, if we're honest, there's some areas that we've never invited you into certain parts of our lives. There's areas we've, we've slacked off on. I pray, Father, that, that this would be a moment, a moment where your spirit would guide them to identify that one area and to say, yes, Jesus, I want to invite you into that. I want you and your power to be revealed in that area of my life that I might be able to experience new life in that place like never before. Thank you, Lord, that you are the source of those things, that you're aware of each need that exists in this room. 
pray you would continue to walk with us, guide us, love us, and keep us. In Jesus' name, amen.